Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Conversational. My name is Julie Rame, and today I have the distinct pleasure of chatting with, I know I say this a lot because I actually, it's true, but it's another longtime friend. I know I, I open with that quite often, but this is the point of these podcasts is I get to bring back these people I've known forever and, and introduce them to all of you and their amazing stories. And so Jackie Kelly fits that bill perfectly. We were just chatting before the recording about when we met and it's probably 20 years this year, which you know, means we were both just children when we met initially. Um, so Jackie, for those of you who, who don't know Jackie, she is the CEO of Dentsu Americas. Um, kind of funny story, my son, some of you know, Luke is a freshman at uh, Emerson up in Boston studying marketing communications. Um, I have no idea why, but I was telling him about my podcast coming up today, talking to Jackie. And I told him about Dentsu and he's like, what's what's Dentsu? And I was like, oh, it's an agency holding company. Well, what's that? So I went through, I'm like, you know, it's Omnicom, WPP, IPG, Publicis, Dentsu. Wow. And so I think, you know, Dentsu often doesn't get um, billing maybe because um, Jackie and, and her brethren aren't quite as prolific as the former um, <laughs> Sir Martin Sorrell and uh, John Wren. But um, for anybody who knows anything about the industry, uh, Dentsu is the powerhouse in data and science um, technology. And so it makes total sense that they would put somebody like Jackie at the helm because she's that great blend of actually understanding the benefit of science and technology, but with that total human um, connection and relationship and just understanding of overall business strategy. So she's not been here very long. So she's been at Dentsu just a year basically a year last year, January of 2020. And before that, she had a lot of really cool jobs. Uh, 2019 is when she left her last position. So she was president, chief client officer, Dan, D-A-N-U-S. And then before that, she was deputy COO for Bloomberg LP, working with Michael Bloomberg. Super interesting stories there. She was CEO of Bloomberg Media, CEO North America, and president of global clients for IPG Media Brands, and global CEO of Universal McCann. Um, not listed on her bio, but I know because that's where we met. Before that, she had really cool positions at places like oh, you know, that place called Yahoo and USA Today and even Martha Stewart. So she has seen the full gamut and today serves on boards like the Ad Council, Fresh Pet, Comic Relief USA. She has been very um, duly honored with several different awards, such as United Way of New York City's Power of Women to Make a Difference Award, because as I said, she is more than just a pretty face. She is a giver and a smart cookie. She was also named Matrix Award Honoree by New York Women in Communications, Advertising Woman of the Year by Advertising Women of New York, a New York Women in Film and Television Muse Award Honoree, and she was inducted into the American Advertising Federation Hall of Achievement. She's also been given lots of other, you know, awesome awards like the 50 Most Powerful Women in New York, Ad Age's 100 Most Influential Women in Advertising, as well as Business Insider's 30 Most Powerful Women in Advertising list. And she's a neighbor. So we actually typically always like run into each other back when you could run into people in New York City, but she's <laughs> she lives closer to me here than probably we were even okay. when we were in the city. So it is my pleasure to welcome you, Jackie, to the conversational. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. 
It's fun. So as you know, my favorite opening line is tell it. So you live in Connecticut now, but I know that's not where you started. Will you tell us where you were born and just a little bit about what your parents did and, and brothers, sisters? Yeah, of course. So I was born in the fabulous state of Colorado. Um, I'm a fifth generation cattle rancher. I was uh, born in Denver, uh, but raised in Douglas County, uh, which is very rural south of Denver, uh, southeast of Denver, I guess. And um, I'm the middle child. I've got an older sister who's a lawyer, very accomplished lawyer, and a younger brother um, who works for my dad. Uh, and they are both mortgage financers. My dad is an entrepreneur. He's had his own business for most of most of my life. I remember him having his own business. He is over 80 now and still is the hardest working person I know, which I admire. Um, he loves what he does and he and he he would never have a day where he didn't enjoy going to his office. So it's, it's kind of um, inspiring to watch. And my mom uh, is, a, is an accountant. Uh, she was an accountant during part of my upbringing. She um, stayed home with us a lot as well, which was wonderful. She's an incredible accomplished pianist and singer and sewer. And she did lots of stuff at home that just, just always kept things um, interesting. So I'm very fortunate to come from a, a, a intact and very loving home and enjoyed my upbringing in Colorado. Did you uh, pick up any of those musical genes? You know what? To my mom's credit, she had all of us take piano lessons. And so um, I, I love playing the piano when um, I remember getting my first professional bonus um, and I went out and bought a grand piano with it. So I still have it. I'm looking at it as we speak. And it is it still makes me smile because it's how I chose to spend my first my first free money that I, that I got to, to do something nice with. And I bought a piano. Do you play? I do. You do well anymore. I mean, I don't play it enough, you know, pianos like anything else. If you're not, if you don't do it enough, you get rusty. And so I have a few, a few favorites that I can pull out and, you know, if I play them for about a half an hour, I can get back to where I was, but it's, it's not easy. I need to, I need to spend more time doing it. I bet that's fun during, um, well, back when we were having like proper holidays and things with people over, do you get on and do like, you know, I just envision those, those people who are musical, like doing those sing along. Yeah, who play the Christmas carols and everybody sings yeah. along. Yeah, we do some duets. It's fun. When, when we're at, when I'm at home, my mom and dad are both very musical. My mom, unfortunately, was diagnosed with, with MS many, many decades ago. And so it's hard for her to play them. But my dad is also very musical. So yes, it's fun. Oh, I love that. Yes, I think that's, I mean, that's for me, that's idyllic. And speaking of idyllic, uh, I, we spoke and you said not only were you living in Colorado, but I think probably super unique, I have to say probably to anybody I know, is the fact that you guys basically, your generational, your generations of your family settled in Colorado back in the 1800s. I mean, literally yeah. came off the boat and, and traversed yeah. the country. Yeah, I, I um, we are the we are the oldest family owned ranch, definitely in Colorado. Maybe I've I've heard maybe even west of the Mississippi. Um, we found my my uh, great great greats uh, came you know across from Philadelphia in 1863 and um, homesteaded there, and it's been run by you know my my great, great grandfather. And then my, my grandfather ran it and my cousins have run it right now. My cousin runs it and it's, it's always been in the family. It's pretty amazing. The rest of the land around us has been, you know, acquired 
by others and um, largely for, for conservation, which is, which is a very honorable thing. John Malone, who, who you know, is, a, is the father of cable in our industry, um, has bought up a lot of land in Colorado, including around us. But we are we are the one family holdout there. And you guys that you said they're from Philadelphia, but Philadelphia via way of Scotland, right? Yes, originally from Ireland and Scotland. Yeah, is the is the is and that's is where the town that you mentioned, right? Which is what Kiowa is that Kiowa? Um, so the ranch is in Kiowa, and then I grew up just um, two towns from that in a little town called Franktown. Okay, and in Kiowa, did, is it? Is like the whole area was it settled by like so I just assume I I again I think I've got this whole like movie Broadway thing in my head like far and away where you've got the 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 covered wagons you know rolling across the country yeah. and it's yeah. all Scottish and Irish settlers together is it is it predominantly st- or, or was it for a long time like I would say area? that it is um, most of the most of those that um, you know ranched with us over the over the the decades they they were family owned as well and they were found. You know, they were they were owned by generations. I think that probably three or four generations. We might be the only fifth, but it is. And you find you know you find arrowheads in the in yeah. the in the ground. I mean, it is. There's you know there's so much history in 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 every part of the world, but certainly um, we see that we have an old cemetery that's that's on the ranch that has tombstones from you know the late 1800s. It's pretty amazing. Wow, that is. I mean, that is so. That is so cool. So did you, when you guys say you owned a ranch, did you ever, did you work on the ranch? Did you, were you like into horses or what kind of ranch? So we had, um, I don't know if any of the listeners will, will um, know 4-H, but 4-H is, is one of the, it's a youth program where um, as kids you have projects. And so we didn't, um, we always had projects and, you know, you take animal projects and there's other projects as well, but we always had um, each year we would, my sister and brother and I would each raise um, a steer. Sometimes we'd raise multiple steers where you, you know, you, you buy them when they're babies and then you raise them all year long. You show them at the county fair. And fortunately, if you, if you do well, and you know, in my case, I, I did that for a decade. Um, it paid for a lot of my first year of college, thankfully, because you sell them um, at the end of the project and you, you keep the proceeds, you know, relative to what it costs to, to buy them and feed them for the year. Um, and of course you're up at five 30 in the morning to feed them every morning. So yes, we, we, we learned a lot of hard work early on by virtue of our, of our, um, 4-H projects, which were always, you know, tied to the, to the ranch and, you know, really my family's belief that you learn a lot at an early age by taking on responsibility for something like that. Yeah, I, I always admire, I, you know, I grew up a lot in the Midwest, so I was born in Wisconsin. And so I had a lot, I've, I've lived in 12 States, but a lot of the States were Midwest. So 4-H was a very big yeah, big deal. And, and I always, you know, admired just the, t- the hard work and the tenacity of the, the people who did that. But did you, so I always envision like you go and again, now see it's like books, Charlotte's web and they show the prize pig and then the yeah. pig and then the pig becomes bacon. And it's, was it ever hard? I mean, did you ever become terrible. attached to these animals? Yeah, terrible. It's really hard. I remember, um, I love that you mentioned Charlotte's web because she got like grand champion pig. So I had the grand champion steer in 1984. I'm proud to say, um, it's really hard. You become, I remember the first time that I, um, that I, that I showed my steer and then sold him. And then you wait Sunday of the County fair is when they come to pick them up. And, you know, I mean, I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. It was so sad because I had loved him all year long. Um, yeah, that was the hard part. You, you kind of begin to get a bit 
can never used to it, but you know, it's coming. So you, you yeah. kind of enter into the relationship slightly differently, but yeah, it was really hard. I would think it's like, you know, silence of the lambs. Like, I mean, as, as children were so, I don't know, you know, you, it's like the, the harsh reality boy, you know, of the, the cycle of life and the food chain and those kinds of things hit you pretty early when you do. It the does. Food. Yeah. The only but, thing is I used to, I used to feel worse for my um, friends that had projects that were the lambs because I always felt like you could cuddle with the lamb. I mean, a, a, a steer is, you yes. know, a big animal. So it's, it's a different kind of love I would guess, but the little lambs always bothered me. But anyway, I know, I know this is not what this was about. I just kind of got off on this tangent thinking like, wow, you talk about holy shit moments. I bet those were like mini moments, like just the jarring of reality as a child, but you know, anyway, yeah, I, when I think back on it, I, I, I've, I've said to my parents this, I, you know, there were days where I used to sort of begrudge the fact I had to get up early and feed the steers and, you know, rain or, you know, we lived in Colorado, so there's blizzards and you're out there, you know, walking and feeding and uh, whatnot. And I, back then, you know, you didn't value it, but when I, like all things in life in hindsight, you realize how much you were learning right. in that moment and how it really crafted your character in a way that's valuable. So I always look back on it with such gratefulness that that was my upbringing. Um, yeah. yeah, I love it. So rooted. And so, so, so Americana. And so how does a girl from um, like fifth, sixth generation Colorado and rancher <laughs> make her way um, to California and then all the way to the East coast? Yeah. So I, um, because no, my family has lived in Colorado, it's, it's, you know, whole life. I figured when I went to college that I had four years, only four years of my life to live anywhere else. And so I wanted it to be distinctively different than Colorado. And so I was looking through, I remember it distinctively. I was looking through the New York times guide to colleges and I saw a picture <laughs> of Pepperdine university on the beach in Malibu. And I said to my dad, this is where I'm going to go. And it's, I mean, Pepperdine still today is a really competitive school. It was, it was very competitive then. And it, God bless him. He looked at me and he said, I, honey, I love you, but I'm not sure you'll get in, which was fair. It was a very fair statement from my father. And I did get waitlisted. I am a proud Pepperdine graduate though. I tease them today that they waitlisted me, but um, it was a great, I loved, I loved going to school there. It was a wonderful um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great campus in that it's, it's beautiful in its setting. It is, um, it's got very um, grounded, uh, it's a religious school. It's affiliated with the Church of Christ, which was important to me. I was raised as a strong Christian. I really wanted a school that represented those values, but it also had great um, uh, education in, edu in communications. Um, organizational communications is what I studied in marketing. They have a great program, they still do which I'm engaged with today. And I just, I loved going there, but I thought I would go there for just, just, you know, and then go right back to Colorado. And I got an internship at USA Today as a senior, thanks to a wonderful marketing professor and an alumni from Pepperdine that had gone to work at USA Today. And I started as an intern in my final year of school and left USA Today 18 years later. They teased me. I was the longest living intern. <laughs> um, but it was, it was really a great place. You know, you, you go back to, um, I graduated in 1988 from college. And at that time, USA Today was only five years old. And oh my God, you know, is that true? Yeah, they were found, they, you know, 1982, if you go back and look at 1982, it was an incredible year of, of companies that, that were founded. I think CNN is 82, FedEx is 82. I think I've got that right. 
there's a lot of great companies that that hap- that that were were formed in '82, and um, USA Today was one of them. So you know, we were we said we were coast to coast because we had distribution in New York and in in LA, but I don't know we were fully national yet. But it was the only color you know newspaper was distributed nationally. It was known for its sports scores. Yeah. Um, it did. It did. It had great coverage. It was a really, really great place to work. And, you know, every, every two years I was changing jobs. I worked in, in circulation, which is really the lifeblood of a, of a newspaper. It was this so whole DC, Jackie, did you go, were you intern? Did you go cross? Yeah. So I started in LA and then I, 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 funny enough, I, you, you, I, I always encourage people to have the chutzpah to be clear about what you want. Um, and I had finished my internship and decided I didn't want to live in LA. I loved going to college there, but growing up in Colorado, LA was, LA just felt, I don't know. I, I missed the four seasons. There was lots of things I, I missed about Colorado. So I, I met, I made a meeting with my um, regional vice president, a wonderful leader named Russ Ford. And I said to Mr. Ford at the time that I wanted to work at the company, but I didn't want to work in LA. And he, he challenged me. He said, how do you feel about Dallas? I'd never been to Dallas. I got a one-way ticket to Dallas and took a job, um, took the, the open role that was a permanent position after graduating. So I was in Dallas for, um, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe six or eight years. Oh. Um, that's not too different than Colorado. I mean, it depends it, on where. Yeah, it's in- not. I love Dallas. You know, Dallas gets a, I think Dallas is a really vibrant city. It was a, it was a great place to work. And during that time, um, for part of the time I was, I was focused on the, the, um, the Dallas territory, which included, you know, Oklahoma and, you know, lots of Texas and parts of Louisiana and was working on the circulation side and distribution. Uh, back then, you know, you might remember this, Julie, you go to any hotel, you get a USA Today at your door. So I ran a lot of those programs. I still do. I call it the people's paper. And I think exactly it's right. I do. <laughs> and then at the time, I took a job training a lot of the other um, offices. So I became a, a, a sales trainer helping our other offices, um, you know, hone our sales pitch and drive growth. And so I was traveling a lot. So during that time, I had a national job for part of that. But being based out of Dallas for a national job is great because DFW is such a accessible airport. So I did that for a while. And then I moved to headquarters, which is DC. So I went to DC in, oh gosh, 98, maybe. Um, and I uh, loved living in DC as well. Right. City, like as far as cities go, I mean, you know, it helps that you can't build anything taller than the Washington Monument in the city. So you don't get that sort of overwhelming New York Metro feel, but, but a little bit more of a conservative town. I mean, you know, in terms of just the way the behavior, it's not quite as crazy. So that was a little, was that an easier transition in terms of moving to quote unquote a city? Yeah, it was great. I I loved being in DC. We lived in Virginia. I always lived in Virginia because that's where Gannett was headquartered. Um, But it was, you know, it's such a, it's, it's because you've got proximity to so many different, uh, whether it's DC or Maryland, you know, you've just, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful place to live. And so I was there for, well, I left USA Today in 2006. So I was there for still quite a while. I moved to the advertising side during that time. So I, um, I had wonderful people who, you know, saw potential in me that I didn't actually see in myself. I had not thought about switching from the distribution side to the advertising side, but had an opportunity to do that. And I left um, in 2006 as a head of 
the head of advertising for um, USA Today and left only because, you know, the, the, the consumer behavior had changed so dramatically, as you well know. Yeah. And we had certainly USA Today and Gannett more broadly had, had worked hard to pivot to digital, but because so much of our infrastructure was based on a, on a daily publication and our journalism team was, you know, I mean, they, they, had, they had grown up writing articles, which is different than, than writing for the web. Although, you know, in hindsight, I always said USA Today was such a perfect perfect brand for the web because it was built on short stories. It was, it was really custom built for that moment, but we weren't pivoting fast enough. I think any of us that were there at the time would probably argue in hindsight, there was some, there were some pretty big pivots that we needed to do more quickly that we missed. And I had the opportunity to go and work with one of your other podcast um, <laughs> areas of focus, Winda Millard. And Winda was running sales at Yahoo at, at Yahoo at the time. And she had said to me, you need to be a Yahoo. The consumer behavior is changing. Two years before I actually moved, she said, you have to think about how consumer behavior is changing and you have to follow that. And that stuck with me um, as much as I loved uh, Gannett and it spent a lot of time there. You know, it's hard to leave a company when you have when you have that kind of equity because you know you know all the bricks in the building. But I I I really felt like it was time to become a beginner again. And Winda challenged me to do that and and set me up with the 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 sort of the structure and the 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 role that allowed me to be a beginner again and not have to know everything about digital. Cause I really did not know some of the more obvious things. Cause I had, you know, I didn't come right. from that. No. And it was in 2006. I mean, you know, we think about, we go back and think about, I, I was, I was talking about the, you know, when we launched the Ford focus back in 99, you know, I had committed, I don't know, 10, 20% of the focus launch budget to digital, which was crazy because of course the first internet ad only ran in 1994. Five. It was an AT&T ad. I've given presentations on this. That's the only reason I know that. Um, but, um, but you think about like 2006. So it's like, oh, okay, well, that was 10, 11 years. However, as we know, like the, the number of ad dollars committed to quote unquote, the internet, even in 2006 was not, I mean, it was certainly not the majority, you know, I, it was not that, that big, but on the other hand, it was certainly the movement. Cause we talk about like Yahoo you know, then, you know, Yahoo was such a big deal. It was the yodel, the people again, that's right. Do karaoke, but it was like the Yahoo, it was this crazy and it was very well known. And it was the, it was the, you know, digital platform kind of AOL had been there too, but AOL, even by that point had gone, they had had, email versus like the internet. Right. And Yahoo is the first one to really become I think internet, right? And so, yeah, I always, I had the same feeling, Julie. I always told people that, you know, and again, I always say back then it's not that long ago. And, you know, there was, there was AOL, there was Google and there was Yahoo and they all had very discreet. I think when you, if you, if you were in the business back then, they had very discreet roles that they were playing. And for those of us who loved building brands, Yahoo was the obvious place to go because they were teaching they were teaching marketers how to build a brand on the web and they had such depth in doing it. It was really a great place to be. Yeah. And so interesting, but I mean, again, talk about holy shit moments to your point. I think you'd said when you left in 06, what percent of digital was, was USA today? 
Yeah, I think when when I left, I feel like it was definitely no more than 6%. It might have been even less than that. Um, it was a tiny percentage. I, I've been interviewed before, and I remember saying that, you know, it got less than 5% of my time. Now, that's unfortunate, right? I, as an executive, I should have been making that pivot. But when you've got a business that is so anchored in, in one aspect that you're, you know, serving clients and, and working to, to feed every day, it's hard to make that pivot. Um, I think as, as, as executives and people in the industry, we have to plan for the pivots. And when you miss those and it's that foundational, it, you know, it, it changes the course of companies. And so I think, I think certainly I was glad to have made the pivot and, and really jumped into the deep end of, of what at that time was the, the, the best place to get a digital education in the industry. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I totally agree, but I think you, I can't imagine because you're pretty seasoned. I mean, you've been in the business a long time. You were, I mean, people may not realize this, but you know, well, during print and running ad sales at USA Today was a big deal. I mean, you were very well known. I mean, it was a big deal. And you go from that to having a substantial role in a, at Yahoo in a medium that you're unfamiliar with. I, I mean, yeah. how, look, I'm sure you felt a lot better because Wenda brought you over and she was going to help you be successful, right. which is of course why we glom on to people and, you know, we support one another, but how did, I mean, how were you feeling and what was like, what, what did you, was there, do you remember a moment when you were there that either you were like scared shitless or were yeah. like, okay, I can do this. Yeah, hundreds of moments. So what's, what's funny is I, um, I, I, what's in, and I always encourage people to, to zig and zag in their careers because it was at the time I left USA Today. Now you can, again, in hindsight, this, this might, everything looks more obvious in hindsight, but in that moment, I was the, I was one of, I think there were probably others, but I was the successor to the CEO yeah. and I was the most senior female executive, uh, myself and, and the editor. And I was, I don't, I mean, I just, I loved that place, right? And when you spend 18 years someplace, you grow up with people there. And so I felt like part of the fabric, the, the equity that that creates, whether it's in your heart or in your um, wallet is substantial. And so I, leaving that was really hard, but I, I, I landed at Yahoo and I joke that I had a, you know, a corner office with a bathroom because that's what we had back then in, in, you know, big print. And I landed in a cubicle with a pole where I literally had to stand up in order to get out of my seat. Cause Yahoo didn't have, for the most part, Yahoo didn't have offices. We were in open space again, very forward thinking in terms of what most of us now are in open space and would never want to go to back to an office. But um, when we're in an office, I realize, yeah. um, and it was really different. I was an individual contributor, right? I left managing a huge team and I was an individual contributor, but I always encourage people become a beginner again. Only when you are really awkward in what you're doing, are you, I think, really learning at a level that is, that is meaningful. And I was, I was awkward most days. Most days I would walk to the train station. I'd relocated to um, New Canaan. So I was commuting in and out of New York, which again, for, for somebody who grew up on a cattle ranch, New York is not exactly my cup of tea. But I, um, 
I would walk to the train station every night and I would just roll around in my brain everything that I heard that I had no idea what it meant. And then I would research on the train on the way home what the acronym was or what they meant or the case study they were talking about. So I sort of went to school again um, and it was really good for my brain. It was good for my energy. It was good for my, it was good for my future, right? At the time I didn't realize that, but anyway, I always encourage people to zig and zag. I love that you leaned in though to it because again, that could have, it could have been, it could have gone either way, right? One, you, you could have been just overwhelmed by it, or you could have been like, whatever, I'm going to fake it until I make it, which is not, I think what you did, you actually worked to make it. So, I mean, I think the, the people could have been like, whatever, I'm here to do the whatever strategy. So I'm not going to get into the details and I'm not going to take the time to learn all, you know, I, I, so I, I, I think it's a really good learning lesson for people because it can be a holy shit moment and it's you, you make a choice. So it's, it's a really great, it's look, I like to pull these little lessons out of all these things. Yeah. Okay. So coming out, like, so we're towards the end because I remember that pivotal moment I mean, I remember, I remember being a Chrysler was like, in you know, five was my last year. And I was asked to speak to Armstrong. This is, so this is the benefit of all of us being seasoned. That's a kinder word than old and all have known each other. But when Tim was running ads, ad, like ad digital at Google, yeah. at Google, he invited me to come speak because towards the end of 05, we were starting to mix in some more Google and they were sort of the new young. And it was like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. They weren't yes, as that's right. Or- established as Yahoo, you know, it's not, it wasn't as safe a bet for us as marketers. And so it's very interesting though, because it, it only seemed like, I don't have the dates or the stats, but it only seemed like a matter of maybe months, like 24 months, 18 months where the tide shifted dramatically. Yeah, for sure. Is that, yeah. you- I feel like I was there as the tide was shifting. Um, I, cause I joined in six and I left a year and a half later. And when I left, it was, it was a fundamentally different company. And I think at the same time, um, you know, we forget about MSN. MSN was also a, a good competitor back then with, with Yahoo. Joanne Bradford was formidable. So Joanne, Winda and Tim were like the trifecta of, of ad sales. And um I think it was during that time that Yahoo really changed. They lost, I think we lost our way a bit. Now, the one thing that they did, which I think really propelled them for a period of time is they merged their search business with their brand business. So if you think about, you know, the benefit of what what performance media tells you, search tells you about your brand business, that's obvious to us today. But Yahoo was the one company that had both of those in, in significant ways. And so that we, we did merge those two right as I was leaving, which was a, a significant opportunity. But you're right. I mean, Google, Google was beginning to really sort of shift their strategy and become far, far more than search. Yeah. Yeah. So, when it, so what was there? So Terry Semmel was CEO, yes, when you were yeah. there? Yeah. yeah. So what, what caused the, and how long were you at Yahoo and what caused the shift? And I'm, I'm, I know Wenda comes back in to play. Yeah. So that all- I, was at, I was at Yahoo for under two years, which again, somebody who'd been at someplace 15, uh, 18 years, I, I expected to, to be a joiner again. Um, but I, again, it was shifting a lot. We had, I think we had three CEOs during the, the short time I was there. And, you know, it was a strategic shift in merging search and, and brand, which not only was a strategic merger, but it was a cultural merger. Those are very, very different skill sets, very different people, very different perspectives on the industry. So that cultural uh, combination was was also a, a trick and change management that was really important. 
And, you know, some people left during that time and Wenda was one of them. And Wenda chose to leave and go to Martha Stewart. And I, you know, again, I often tell people to, to pick people. I think we are products of the, the individuals that we have the privilege to learn from and serve with every day. And, and I wasn't done learning from Wenda. So I, I finished a, a project I had committed to, 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 to help the integration of search and display at, at Yahoo. And then I went and joined Wind at Martha Stewart, which is where she had left to, to be the CEO. Hmm. And I love, so, I mean, look, well, we're about to come into what I consider to be probably one of the most interesting parts of anybody's story, which is that you are about to come here to work for Martha Stewart, Martha, and then you're going to leave there and you're going to go Michael Bloomberg which like two of the biggest personalities ever. So I, I mean, for whatever you can share, I think that they're, you know, the thing with both those two personalities and sort of what you did and how you worked with them and knowing you, I mean, the persona that those two individuals have in the public sphere, which is always a very, you know, different than reality, of course, but you are, you know, you, your, who I know of you is a total opposite even keeled, soft-spoken, behind the scenes. And those two are very kind of limelight, obviously wicked smart, but very controversial in their own way. Mm -hmm. So I am super interested to hear your experience of both of these companies and how you got to there and like your journey of getting to them. But then, you know, what you learned, just, I mean, what you learned about yourself and, but just any of those moments along the way, because that I think would be useful for people to hear and to realize about these personalities and really some of the value that comes out of them and what that taught you would be. Really yeah, good. I'm not happy to do that. So, um, so it, it, it Martha, I mean, what they have in common and in between, let me just give you a, a thumbnail in between Martha and Mike, funny that they're Martha and Mike, I worked, I took my first stint at an ad agency. So I'll come back to that. Oh, that's true. Right. You have, yep, yep, yep. Okay. But Martha and Mike are, um, they, they're both incredible entrepreneurs, right? These are two people who both founded their own companies. They came to it very differently. You know, Martha had been a, a homemaker, a good homemaker who realized she could make a business out of what she was doing catering in, in Westport, Connecticut. And Mike was terminated from a role and given a, a, a big severance check and took his severance check and turned it into uh, Bloomberg because he saw the gaps in the, in the trading practices at Solomon where he was, and he knew he could make it better with technology. And he's an engineer by trade. Mm -hmm. So what they both have in common, and I watch this, I, I admire both of them so much. And yes, to some degree, I guess they, they can be polarizing, but what they have in common, which is, which is when you're in their presence, it is, it's awe-inspiring to me. They both have an incredible attention to detail. Um, you know, Mike will tell stories about installing the terminal and getting on his hands and knees and plugging in the cable for their first customers to make sure that it worked. So there, you know, no job is too small, which is, and I would say the same thing about Martha, right? She tests every product she makes. She tests herself, you know, to, to a significant degree. They both have, they're both tireless, right? They are both tireless, but they're never tired, which I find amazing. And they, they all have, they both have really strong core values. They're different, but they have core values. I think about Mike who, you know, the culture of Bloomberg is one of the strongest cultures I've ever worked in. And it is directly related to what Mike values because, you know, people, people join that firm and they're there for most of their career. And so it's about transparency, which is inherent in the product. It's about, uh, 
being fast, but being thoughtful. I always loved that value because you can argue that there, those two things are inherently at conflict. And yet he was very clear. We have to be fast, but you know, be thoughtful about what we're doing. Um, it's a bold company They, you know, Bloomberg doesn't do anything small. It is a bold company, but at its heart, and this is what I probably value most about Mike's leadership at its heart, it wants to do the right thing. And it wants to make the industry it's a part of better. So, you know, he created something that world markets now trade on with transparency. He made that better. And a hundred percent of his profits now go to making the world better through climate change and, um, you know, healthcare and, uh, education. His foundation is an incredible part of the organization. So I always felt really proud about working there because I knew every profit dollar I created went right into making our world a better place. He's an incredible leader. He would have been an incredible president. I say that still to this day. He might not have been a great candidate. I get that. Everybody challenges me on that. He would have been an exceptional president. Yeah. I, you know, I remember the ads coming out. I actually remember you being a testimonial in the ad. It's so funny. I was like, Oh my God, there's Jackie, you know? So it's- I, was, I was really, it was an honor to be asked because I was And part of this is, you know, um, one of, one of my gotcha moments a bit at Bloomberg is, is I joined to, I joined Bloomberg and Bloomberg media and, you know, Mike came back from, you know, Mike had left the mayor's office right as I was joining Bloomberg. His term had expired, his third term, which he was only supposed to get two, only Mike can figure out how to get three. <laughs> and he was not expected to come back to the, to the organization. He was expected to return to the foundation. And he came back as the CEO of the company. And it was, you know, that was a gift. I loved that. I was, it was a treat that, that, that was a bit of a pivot, but, you know, two years into that role, this, the strategy changed a bit. And my boss at the time wanted to make a pivot in Bloomberg media and wanted me to move into a different role. And I, you know, everybody needs to sort of take their own stock when somebody wants you to move into a different role, when you have to sort of look in the mirror and say, gosh, what did I not do well enough in the role I had? And then you have to say, am I excited about this thing they want me to pivot to? And in my case, I, I wasn't that excited about it. And so I had made the decision I wanted to leave Bloomberg Media. And Mike, to his credit, um, came to me and said, would you consider being a successor to my COO and moving to the, to the what I call the mothership out of Bloomberg Media, which operates as a, you know, kind of a startup inside a well-fund financial firm? Would you consider moving into the financial side? And... I did that. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I chose to be in that commercial because he was getting such criticism for the culture he creates for women. And he created an opportunity for me as a woman. And I remember sitting there debating with him whether I was qualified because I wasn't qualified to help run his supply chain and tech services and things that were things I'd not done. HR, I got to, to leave for a period of time there, which I love. That's, that's an area I had more experience in. But there were many things he gave me that I had no background in. And he looked at me and he said, Jackie, I've got thousands of people who have background in that. I'm not asking you to, 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 to know the ins and outs of it. I'm asking you to lead it. I'm asking you to go in there and help enable their success and, and learn it. And I'll give you the time to do that. And he, the fact that he bet on me like that, and he's done that, there's countless women like me inside Bloomberg where he has handpicked us to do unique roles. And I will always be grateful for that. And so I felt very privileged to be asked to be in that ad. That's amazing. Oh, I, and I love, I love that story because I think that honestly, pre, this is not supposed to be about him, but, but pre him running for office, that's kind of what I had thought and heard about him. 
I think, you know, the, I think running for president is the worst thing anybody can do to themselves. Like, you know, you have to have a, <laughs> you have to have a, a bit of a kind of a, a, a sick part of you that opens yourself up for people to create a caricature of who you are. But, um, you know, until, until all of that, that's exactly what I had heard and then thought about him as just the super savvy, kind of industrious, hardworking. And I'd seen a lot of women. All in- that. He is all of that, right? And their culture is not perfect, but no culture is. Yeah. And and they were doing all the hard work to, as everybody is now today, but even, even um, you know, the DEI efforts that everybody's taking on today as we live through 2020, I've been in, every company I've been in has had great efforts. Bloomberg was the most committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion that I had ever worked in. And, you know, some of that, some of that was Peter Grauer, who's the chairman versus, in addition to Mike, but Anyway, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't get to be the founder of a company that's that successful without not, without some level of controversy, right? It's just, it's just how it works. Of course. Right. Because your life, everything, we're all controversial. It's just, we're not all public. So exactly right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so I'm, cause I know I skipped over the universal McCann, but I'm going to, let's go to how you decided to, you know, leave Bloomberg and, and go to Dentsu mm-hmm. and like yeah. in there, let's wrap about, let's, then let's connect the dots with Universal McCann and your aging agency experience that was preceded Bloomberg and how that influenced your decision to, to move towards Dentsu. Yeah, I can quickly do that. No problem. So I, um, uh, I was just sharing earlier that I, um, uh, before we started the podcast, that I had met a wonderful leader in the industry that many listeners will know named Mike Hughes, uh, who was the sort of the creative energy of the Martin Agency um, for, for decades. And Mike told me early on in my career when I was at USA Today that the agency side of the business is magical because you, if you, if you love the work, you will find, you know, the, the, the goal is to find work you love with people you love. And once you find that, don't ever let that go, was his advice to me. And I, I found that at UM and at Media Brands and at IPG. I loved the agency side. I went there a bit unwillingly. I'd never been worked at an agency. I, I had professed on, on many panels that I thought agencies were a barrier to my progress as a media owner because they didn't give me the gift of time and transparency, which is what you need in order to develop your best ideas as a media owner. And at the time, the, the CEO of UM named Matt Seiler was really interested in flipping the agency model, making sure we are the best partner to media owners. So that's why I joined UM. I loved being part of IPG. It was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful part of my career. It taught me a lot about our industry and I loved being on the agency side. Left and went to Bloomberg because it was just super enticing to me. I love news organizations. What got me back to um, agencies is, as, as I was mentioning, Mike wanted to be to be the successor to his COO. And as that moment, I knew eventually that moment would come and I wasn't I was, I was doing work that was interesting with people I admired, which was different than work I love with people I love. Uh-huh. And I went looking to go back into the agency world. And I was very transparent with him that I was going to do that. And he was terrific to allow me to continue to, to show up at Bloomberg every day and, and do my work there while I was considering what I would do next. And I w- went to all the holding companies. I, I became intrigued with Dentsu because it is the oldest holding company formed in 1901, but it's also the newest, the youngest, because internationally it was not formed until its acquisition of um, Aegis in 2012. So it's only, you know, eight and a half years old, eight, you know, nine years old. 
uh, internationally. And it was built through acquisition in a digital age. So we have the capability that I would argue matters most to marketers today. And we don't have these big siloed walls between our capability because we're, we're a group of entrepreneurs. And so we have gone through a transformation to really streamline that capability. And I think it is formidable. I think that we are focused on, on the right things for clients, on the ability to integrate services from creative to media to customer experience with data and technology at the core. And, you know, my premise and, you know, Mark Pritchard has said this, Forrester has said this, and I think they're right, that the complexity of what our CMOs and experience officers are dealing with this today, Julie, you know this firsthand, is how do, I, how, do I, how do I have fewer partners that are helping me solve much bigger complex problems? And I wanna be the network that can be, to those who want it, one-stop shopping across all those things. And many partners don't want one-stop shopping, but if you don't want that, whatever door you come in and whatever service I have, I want our teams to be thinking about what's the, what's the, the yes and to that? What's the thing we can add that will make whatever we're doing even more valuable because we've got the, the breadth of that purview and that we give our teams the breadth of that purview, no silos. Um, we have structures that support that. So I, I think Dentsu is, is the most modern in how we're thinking about the future of a holding company and how we serve clients. Well, and you, what was, how did you, how, what was the moment that you were convinced? Was this the, I mean, what, what was it about? Cause you're, look, I think the story of you through listening through all of your different travails is that you love this sort of integration. You like taking the, yeah. all of the different pieces and making them make sense in total. And so what you're saying and, you know, about this sort of one, getting it all done in one place and, you know, makes sense because that's your, that's, I think that's where your passion is and where you get excited about seeing the big picture versus the vertical. Um, what, what was it, what was the tipping point for you? And I know part of the the great story about this is that when you told Mike, you didn't want to Bloomberg, you didn't want to stay and take on that role. And he was gracious and said, sure, kid, go find your, go figure out what you want to do. And you took the time and, and, you were able to talk to companies, right? And chose, and you chose this. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually, I was, when I was looking, I was, I was very focused on three things. Who had the capability that I thought was the most relevant in a modern era, who was truly structuring to get to this notion of a single PNL. Anybody who's worked on the agency side knows how hard that is to serve a client with the complexities of PNLs across agency holding companies. Mm -hmm. And we've all tried. We're, no matter what network you're in, we all have different schemes in order to make that easier, but it's always challenging. So I was looking for who had a really different view on how to, how to, how to fix that. And then always about the people. So I was, I was you know, interviewing to, to determine, you know, leaders I could learn from, people I could lock arms with, you know, you're in foxholes all the time on the agency side. And so, you know, who do you want to be in that foxhole with? And, and I became convinced that Dentsu was the, was the best choice for me. It was, and what was your, so was there a holy shit moment that like in that, that came upon you as you were looking at these things, like, this is what I need to do. I mean, I, and I say that not only just with Dentsu, but in general, because uh, like, you know, agencies are getting a pretty bad rap these days. I mean, lots of being, things are being brought in house and, yeah. you know, there's, it's like a little bit of a gluttony for punishment. You've had all these. Great Everybody movies. said that to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, why would you want it? Like, yes, send me up for more agency. Sign me up for that. You know, I, everybody challenged me on that, but I, 
I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just built this way. I, I find that the people that are on the agency side, they are, they are the most curious. They are incredibly talented in the breadth of what they know about how consumer behavior is, is occurring, how it's changing, where it's going, what, what that means. I mean, these are the, the talent on the agency side, I think is some of the best talent in the industry. And it is such a team sport. There is no team sport better than the agency side. And I, I really love that. I, I, the, and the, you know, the variability of what you do that it's, it's dynamic every day. I just, I got bit and I think that it needs to be improved. I understand all the, all the challenges and the criticism, but that's opportunity for transformation. And I felt like Dentsu had the appetite and was already doing that. I, I, all I got to do was come in and help accelerate that. So I guess the, 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 the moment for me always in any company is, am I learning? Am I adding value? And am I learning it? But at any point I answer no to that, then I usually have to think about leaving because yeah. I think we're, you know, we're all works in progress and, and I always want to be challenging myself. And, and, you know, usually you get to a point in a role where you just realize it's time to become a beginner again. Yeah. And you do it and you can do it and still be you because at the heart, I mean, I remember the story that you were telling me about that, you know, some people get really excited when they walk, you know, get off the train in right. Grand Central and you get exhausted. exhausted. Yes. <laughs> yes, I so you do. Can't, you can't take the girl out of Colorado. <laughs> yeah. So you've chosen like this very madman Fifth Avenue industry for a girl who doesn't like being in that, you know, and, but you love the, but again, that's the benefit of guess where we are. You know, you can live in Connecticut. Yeah, you, you can. can balance. <laughs> And yeah. the pandemic has anything changed? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll wrap with this. You know, because I, I I think we could talk forever. But has there been any for you or for your whether it's your family or your leadership or takeaways personally? But have there been any? It doesn't even have to be as necessarily as a holy shit moment. But like a, has there been any sort of turning points for you? Because now that we're we're like you know a week away or so from a year of lockdown, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of clients, agents, just differences that you see personally, professionally, how you take it, however you want to take it. Yeah. I'm just curious. From Yeah. Well, I'll get, I'll give you, I think the, the, I think what's changed, I'll, I'll stick with what's positively changed um, and then give you one that's a little bit of a watch out. So I think that the access to people I think has changed. I think that the, the, the screens that we live through today has made people more accessible. Um, I have had, you know, you can grab 10 minute meetings, people, I think, I think people are just more available to connect. Part of that is because we've taken the busyness out of our day. We're not commuting. We're not traveling unnecessarily to conferences that maybe we didn't need to be at to begin with. Right. So there's all this, this noise that's gone away. So there's a focus that's allowed, I think, better access, um, I, I would the got the gotcha in this is I think we are hyper focused right now on the well being of our people mm-hmm. because I think that there is I think there's a mental health crisis that's happening underneath this there's lots that's been written on this and I think we're we're really concerned about how do we help make sure that we are supporting our people I don't think that there's any consistency to how people are living through this you know our younger employees that live in you know small apartments with lots of roommates, this is not a great way for them to be working. For those parents who are homeschooling at the same time, God bless them. That is one of the hardest things to do, right? Um, so I think it's uneven on how we're all managing it. 
Um, personally, though, I will say we are um, proudly foster parents. We are we have our 25th placement with us, and she is this fabulous little girl. And she she was six months old when when we went into to lockdown. And I have loved being able to you know be at home because I my time with her would have been so limited if I was living my normal travel life. So that has been a, a huge silver lining. It's just the the you know, the quality of, of family life, I think is, I'm sure for all, it's not, I mean, there's certainly a lot of togetherness, but it, that part's been great. I have loved being, being home and being available to her. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't, so tw- I, this is a total miss on my part. 25 foster. Did you say 20? He's my 25th. Yeah. yeah. Our 25th. I say my, you're kidding me. My husband, my husband is the, is such a partner in this. Oh, that's amazing! What and and I and then I promise we'll 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 wrap for people. But when did you start? When did you start to do, do, taking on foster children? We had our first. We started in 2014. We got our first placement in the fall of 2014. Um, and we are in the span of like six and a half, seven years. Yeah, we are what there's different types of fostering. We do what is called temporary, which is up to a year. So mm-hmm. we are we are what I call the safe port in the storm is a parent is trying to get healthy, right? There's something, you know, it's poverty or neglect. There's an issue certainly, but the parents are, are aiming to get healthy. And all of our kids have gone back to a family member um, or to mom or to dad. Um, we've not had any that we have the opportunity to, to adopt. They've all gone back into uh, some permanent care situation. This little one might be, might be different and we'd love to keep her, but um, you know, it's, it, they're all different circumstances. Oh, that's so beautiful and amazing. I love that. I didn't know about that, but it is so speaks volumes about who you are and just speaks truth of what I was saying about you. You deserve every single one of those accolades. Do you keep in Uh, touch with all those kids? Do they, or does it, do you have to sort of separate? Is this like the cow where you sell it? No, no, actually that's a great question. (laughs) It's the beauty of fostering. We have, in fact, one of our little guys that uh, was with us for a year uh, we, he comes back and spends the weekend with us when, when his, uh, aunt and uncle need a break and we love having him. So yeah, we have a few that we keep in touch with, not all of them. Um, some of them, you know, were babies and, and, uh, they, they won't remember us, but we'll certainly remember them. And hopefully you give them a, a, a slightly better shot at, uh, life. Yes. Oh my God. I love that. Uh, well, when all this clears up, we'll, we'll get together for lunch and I'll bring little baby Nova. Oh my God. I would love that. And I love actually, I like, I like trying to connect dots. I love sort of twisting the story of you, whether you were fostering animals as a child right. or children <laughs> as an adult, this is what you do. I love this. This is yes. who you are. I and like caregiving. You must be needed. Yeah. But you're the people person. Like your, your watch out was about the people you're fostering at the heart of this, like wildly successful businesswoman is a, is a person focused first and foremost on, on the giving back and the people and the fostering of people and relationships. So it's, it is so who you are. I'm blessed to know you. I'm, I'm just so excited that you were able to be on the, the podcast. Thank you. I've enjoyed listening to yours. So it's, it's a privilege to be one of them. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.